Hello and welcome to 21st Century Vitalism, a podcast asking the question, what does it mean to be fully alive in the 21st century? How can we best embody that aliveness while dealing with the unique stressors that we're facing in this strange and potent time? I'm your host, Brett King. I'm a licensed massage therapist and mindfulness meditation instructor, and I have an insatiable curiosity for what we can do to increase our vitality. Today's episode is going to be about one of my near and dear topics, psilocybin mushrooms, or for the uninitiated, magic mushrooms, the eponymous and infamous uh, fungi that has been providing amazing experiences for people all across the globe for thousands of years, but has recently gained a lot of traction in the past few years in its therapeutic benefits for treating things as depression and anxiety and end-of-life anxieties and the such. And joining me today on the show to help investigate this is Jahan Kamsazadeh, who is a PhD who completed his dissertation in psychedelics at the California Institute of Integral Studies. He's about to be releasing his first book, The Psilocybin Connection, Psychedelics and the Transformation of Consciousness, an Evolution of the Planet and Integral Approach. And he has been facilitating mushroom ceremonies down in Jamaica at the Ottman Retreat Center for quite a few years now. He is a absolute gem of a human being who has really done a lot of beautiful work in compiling all of the years of psychedelic studies into one treatise on how we can best utilize the mushroom to heal. So this conversation has so many elements that I think are very important to this show uh, in terms of how we can engage with the stressful time that we find ourselves in and do some genuine investigative work into the things that really ail us and are keeping us isolated and disconnected from our communities and the planet at large. So a little disclaimer for me, uh, and I do say this in the episode, but mushrooms have played a pretty integral role in my life in terms of helping me see myself in a much more clearer light. There's just so much uh, obscuration that can often happen when we don't have genuine investigative tools at our disposal. So much of our behaviors are on autopilot and conditioned from our past traumas, and it keeps us blind. I mean, it's literally painful to sometimes see some of the things that you've been carrying, which is why our entire organism defends ourselves from these very raw, direct experiences. And for me, the mushroom has always provided a space where I am very skillfully led into a more open and direct relationship with my subconscious. So what started off as something that was really uh, recreational and fun and like, oh, wow, yeah, this is such a novel experience really quickly became something that became the spear point for all of my self-growth. And I'm currently at a place where I don't necessarily use the medicine as often, but I have to give credit where credit is due. And I genuinely don't think I'd be where I'm at today had it not been for the real therapeutic work that I've done with this um, fungal friend. So this episode, we talk a lot about the idea of disconnect. We talk a lot about how this has always been used in our society or in our culture, in our past to connect us to our communities and to remember our place upon the earth as terrestrial beings who are here to live in communion with the natural elements rather than above it. Um, And this really is a beautiful conversation. Jahan is 
so, so knowledgeable about this. And I'm really glad that out of all of the folks that I could have reached out to to walk us through this, it was him. Uh, plus, he has a fondness for the band Tool, which I also do. So we do talk about the festival space a little bit as well. Um, I'm pretty sure he was part of the Burning Man culture. And he has a lot of insights from the counterculture to the... Um, the scientists who are actually studying it in a very real and grounded way. Uh, plus, he's also trained with the Mazatec people, who are the original peoples um, in Latin America who were holding this torch for thousands of years. So really, he has plugged into just about every culture and community that has worked with this, and he is the dude. If there ever were to be a dude, he'd be the dude. So without further ado, I just wanted to open the floor up. This is a really juicy conversation. Honestly, if you wanted to get a notebook and just jot some stuff down, we also talk about how to set up your own intentional space, how to integrate things. It's a very meat and potatoes kind of conversation with a lot of philosophical um, underpinnings, but it's really, this episode is about how to work with the mushroom in a very real and responsible way. We're all about responsibility here at the show. So that's what we're doing today, y'all. I hope you're as excited as I was to record it because I was really, really pumped for this and I'm really pumped to release it. So thank you so much for joining us. As always, if you want to support the show, head on over to Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star review, subscribe to the YouTube, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, interact with all the socials. All that stuff is podcast gold, and I definitely rely on it at this current stage of the show. I wouldn't say it unless it mattered. If you want to follow Jahan's uh, platform, head on over to Psychedelic Revolution. Nope, psychedelicevolution.org. Uh, he's got a lot of really great videos uh, of his prior talks. His new book is going to be coming out very soon. The link is also on his website and down below in the description on the, our website. Uh, again, that book is going to be called The Psilocybin Connection Psychedelics, the Transformation of Consciousness and Evolution of the Planet, an Integral Approach. So please sit back, drink some tea, do some stretches, and welcome Jahan to the show. Jahan, hello. Hello. Welcome to the show. How are you today? Doing really good today. It's nice to be sharing this time with you, Brett. Thank you. Yeah, I've been yeah. looking forward to this. As soon as I heard about your platform through the Future Fossils discussion group, I don't remember what exactly you posted, but I was like, oh no, this is such an important thread in the tapestry of cultivating vitality in this day and age. Um, so for the folks who have not heard of you before or are unfamiliar with your work, you are just wrapping up the final stages of, is this your first book? Correct. It's my first book. And it is The Psilocybin Connection, Psychedelics and the Transformation of Consciousness. Now, for the people who know me on a personal level, they know that this is something that has deeply affected me in my life. Uh, for the folks who only know me through the podcast, um, they're about to know that, <laughs> So as someone who is birthing this book at such a right time in our current socio-political situation, I just want to kind of dial it back a little bit and kind of ask you, how did you get started mm. in this work? No, thanks. Great question. Uh, 
when I was 18, I had a psychedelic experience that radically transformed my life. I'm 37 right now. Um, during that experience, it felt like my whole world turned inside out over the course of an evening seeing Tool, my favorite band. Uh, somebody gave me mushrooms on the way to the show. And I had this experience of feeling eternal, of feeling God, of having this big unit of experience. And I was an atheist at the time, suicidal, depressed. And it broke me through into a new kind of worldview where there's deep interest in spirituality, um, synchronicity. My life had a sense of meaning. Uh, the experience told me love and then learning are the most two important things in life. And so it radically changed me. And I thought about that experience every day for the next seven years, like really consumed by like, how could something so huge exist and then people not be talking about it? I was about to start uh, my first semester of community college uh, two months later. Um, and I went as a, as a neuroscience major. I wanted to study the link between consciousness and the brain. I wanted to eventually do research in psychedelics. This is 2002. There wasn't much research being done at the time. And without any kind of entrance into that area, um, after that semester, I ended up coming across a physics professor that said, if you really want to understand the universe, you have to know physics. And so I went into physics and mathematics as my major for the next three years, thinking that mathematics could explain consciousness. That was, you know, uh, just it's, it's one layer, right? But it's not like the whole depth of it. Something like psychedelics can give you this direct experience of oneness. Uh, a few years in, I took more mushrooms and it said to leave physics and to study mysticism directly. And I was like, this isn't a major. This is not something I can study in school. And there's no profession. You're not going to get paid for this. You know, so there's yeah. a lot of fear around it. But I ended up switching my major again. I ended up majoring in philosophy, which is kind of the closest I could felt I can get to it. Minoring in physics, psychology, one class away from mathematics. I decided then to continue my research into consciousness. I moved to the Bay Area, got my master's in consciousness and transformative studies. During that time, I really also got into psychotherapy. And eventually went to the California Institute of Integral Studies. I uh, got my doctorate in philosophy, cosmology, and consciousness, which really kind of encompassed everything that I was interested in, philosophy being the history of ideas, cosmology, the structure of the universe, and consciousness, more direct experience and how it evolves. Uh, during this time, psychedelics I knew had been playing the most transformative roles of my life. They were given deeper, say, wisdom and information and changes more than therapy had, more than relationships had, more than community had, more than meditation had. I just And I, I gave myself completely over to all those areas. But I just knew that the most pivotal shifts came from those direct experiences. And as I became more and more clear about how I could be of purpose in the world, it was by moving personally my dissertation to focus directly on that research. You know, about five, six years ago, I decided to do psychedelics and got more specific on psilocybin mushrooms. You know, I had another mushroom experience and it said, go get trained in this. And um, so I did. I found some trainings. Uh, I ended up training with Francois Borzac, going to Mexico with her, training within the Mazatec uh, tradition. She, she wrote recently in the book Consciousness Medicine. And I did a multi-year training there. While also getting trained specifically working with mushrooms, I got trained in Hakomi with somatic psychotherapy practice, learning other skill sets. I assisted for two years at the psychedelic certificate training at CIS. I assisted for a year in the, the guide training at the, the Center for Consciousness Medicine. Eventually started doing guide work in, in Jamaica with Ottman Retreats. And so it's pretty much encompassed my whole life, you know, with five years of research for writing the book, uh, which as the publisher states on the Amazon page is 
definitely the largest synthesis of information on psilocybin. I read every material I could come across during that time to try to make a really comprehensive framework. So I've, uh, it's it's changed me inside about, and I definitely think it's the medicine uh, that we need the most right now in this planet. Yeah, I I see that you have a picture of Terrence McKenna in your background, yeah. and I, I love it. And I mean, he was really a big proponent of, it really is one of like the most radical, radically shifting things that we can do in this current paradigm. And it's amazing that you also had Tool as a part of your transformational experience. I absolutely love them. I was just listening last night. Mm. I'm just kind of curious. Do you think that you maybe had a predisposition to be having this experience of unity, which, mm. I mean, I feel like atheism is like, it's kind of one side of the spectrum, but it, it's like b- belief and then atheism, but it's still on the spectrum, whereas mm. I feel like agnostic is a little above it. Do you think that like you were beforehand kind of just wired to be like looking for something? And is it possible that somebody could have a psilocybin experience without that unitive response to it yeah no, i love the question and i'm surprised i haven't been asked that more um i do believe i have a predisposition and it's whether it's genetic temperamental or so on it's hard to say you know i got really is my interest in psychology led me to research a whole bunch of different personality systems like the myers-briggs the enneagrams astrology in terms of natal charts and I'm, I'm a four on the Enneagram, so there's a pull towards death. I'm an INFP. There's a pull towards oneness. My whole natal chart is geared towards kind of transcendental experiences. And there's the flip side where that came in younger life with a lot of pain. You know, at, at age five, I was kind of obsessed around this whole idea of God. Like, what is this idea of this being that kind of sees and controls everything? And that pushed me to lead like structural religion really early around the age of 12. I was like, nobody knows what's going on. And I, so I became obsessed with these larger questions um, and to the point where by the age of 15, I had just so much existential anxiety, you know, of like mm-hmm. nobody knows what's happening. What's the point of my life? A lot of despair. Um, so a lot of people just got to coast through those years. I, I became obsessed. And because of all the years and hours leading up, um, by the time I took mushrooms at 18, it was really ripe for that whole thing to fall apart. And then I still gave myself over to like 20 more years of, of kind of philosophy, which I feel kind of done with for, in many ways. But there has been, I feel, some predisposition to that, to that kind of thinking. And, and to answer your question more fully, having seen, you know, a few hundred uh, psychedelic experiences of other people, um, it doesn't always go to that degree of unity. I, I think, from my perspective, it's the most healing experience that we can have. It helps our sense of belonging, of a wholeness, of purpose. It does a lot. Um, but a lot of times people can take a lot of mushrooms and... Uh, just have personal healing on a biographical level. Some people, there's a very small percentage of people, maybe three to five, you can give them a lot of mushrooms and nothing happens, you know? So mm-hmm. it's not it's not this case where it's effective for everybody. But it does, you know, the wording they use in the experiments, it does occasion mystical experiences. That means it gives a possibility for them to occasionally arrest. Mm, yeah, I love that. Yeah, my experience with the mushroom has always been one of, feeling like it's imbibing with something like there's this sense of like external externality coming in and kind of like taking the driver's wheel, which I think mm-hmm. is something that a lot of people here in the West kind of have a problem doing where we're very control oriented, very mm-hmm. individuality focused. And I mm-hmm. think that disconnection is probably part and parcel with what was making you so um, existentially angst when you were younger was mm-hmm you knew deep down that there was this deeper connection, but you weren't able to feel it until the mushroom actually 
got rid of the blockages. I don't want to like speak for your experience, but Mm -hmm. that's kind of what it was like for me. You know, I've kind of been more agnostic and pushed against things. And it was really by interacting with specifically this substance among a few other ones that it was like, oh, there's a level of connection within my organism that is like to the magnetism of the ground. And Mm. it just sometimes needs that like that merging, you know? Yeah, no, well said. You know, what you said correlates very well with the neuroscience. What we have found, it dissolves what's known as a default mode network. So this network lights up in the brain every time you think of me, 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 I, I, I of the self. And it's overdeveloped with people with anxiety and depression. So if you're in pain, you're constantly self-focused and self-absorbed. And that network gets stronger and stronger. What they have found is that network also works as a repressive faculty for the rest of your being. So in psilocybin states, and we've only known since 2016 with MRI studies, so it quiets the default mode networks, which allows the whole brain to reintegrate. The whole system begins to light up, to rewire. Many of those structures actually stabilize. You know, and, and even to go further, it also stimulates neurogenesis, the growth of new neurons. The brain physically begins to grow. And the parts of your brains that atrophy, it's um, the dendrites can atrophy, the parts that connect the neurons. So it's called spinogenesis. Those, those dendrites can come back to life. So the sense of deadness and isolation you feel in depression is actually parts of your brain actually no longer communicating. And the whole brain starts to move into a unitive state, hyperconnects, and I think correlates to these experiences of unity we have with ourselves, the environment, other people, the universe. That is fascinating. That, that idea of like connection first starts by feeling connected and whole within yourself before you're able to connect and become whole with the environment that you're in. Yeah. And it's so easy for trauma to separate parts of us from ourselves. Mm-hmm. I think one of the really traumatizing things that's baked into our culture is the meme of individuality and mm-hmm. all for themselves. It's like we are born into a world that we didn't necessarily choose. And then by a very young age, we're told like, you better prepare because you're going to be on your own. Like that just sends this entire like physiological messaging. And it just sets us up right from the beginning to Mm. just have kind of traumatized separate lives, you know? So, Mm. so much, so much, see a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah, So it's so much pain. I could say, so much pain comes from this experience of self. I mean, just to break it down, it's like we're alive because we're individuals. So we have an individual and in sense of self. And yet the self is also the source of all our pain. So one way to see it is we're, we're, we're a whole, but we're also parts of a larger whole. And we can't lose that second part. So if we just see ourselves simply as individuals that have to survive on our own, we're filled with a lot of fear. Because in truth, it's like we're in this web of life, this large network. We depend on plants for oxygen, for food. We plan on other animals. We emotionally depend on other humans. And to say we can do this on our own is this fragmented view that one isn't real. So we need to move overall from independence to interdependence, which cause, you know, needs a lot of vulnerability and trust and so on. But if we're left without that, we're kind of stuck in anxiety the whole time of thinking I ha- it's up to me to survive completely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm really seeing right now, I mean, a big part of this show is kind of addressing the fact that we're in a very precarious time in the 21st century with a lot of uncertainty with climate collapse, with um, the crazy political structure that we have that we're all becoming very clear and lucid on. And I think one of the key elements that I really want to thrust forward in the show is community Mm. is the way forward. But so many people have such a mis appropriated sense of what community is because Mm. their sense of community is also oftentimes built on like the bed of traumatized relationships. 
So I'm kind of curious where ceremony comes in because ceremony Mm. from my understanding is a communal act. Mm -hmm. And I think right now we are gravely lacking in having a secular ceremony. I don't know if that's even like a thing because there's usually Mm -hmm. a mystical bent, but as somebody Mm -hmm. who is often in music festival scenes, I see that as the youth's way of like having a ceremony. You have this four day excursion into a field where you're not taking the best care of yourself, to be honest, but you end up having these really, really heightened liminal experiences, but there's no integration, Mm. but there's nowhere else to have that kind of experience for a lot of people who Mm. are starved in their day to day. So where Mm -hmm. do you think ceremony comes in with this work of reconnecting to ourselves Mm -hmm. and with our communities? You know, there's so many ways, you know, to define that word itself. Is it, you know, like more of a traditional setting? You know, like a lot of these have indigenous traditions with lineages going back in a long time and have their own structure. And yet some of those myths and beliefs may not apply to people from our culture. And our culture has a lot to offer, like Western psychotherapy does a lot specifically working with trauma. You know, a lot of these other cultures, they kind of see trauma as these negative spirits that are stuck in your body. You know, we know now that a lot of it's also based on your past experiences. There's a lot to heal. So our culture has a lot to give. But some of my favorite containers by far has been the festivals. You know, the level of recreation, you know, like recreational, but recreation kind of space where it's more light and it's more fun and it's social and it's playful. For me, gives a lot of the set and setting to have optimal experiences. Um, I've also volunteered a lot of times with the Zendo, like the MAPS project where we go to like Burning Man and so on. And we set a stage so that there's safe places that are for people having hard psychedelic experiences. So I think the festival scene needs that. And there's so many ways to make these experiences intentional. You know, if people are doing one-on-one ceremonies with like a psychotherapist, there's always prep sessions leading up, getting to know the person deeply setting the stage, building and trust, then you have the full ceremony. Then normally you have about two weeks of integration and that one session and then the session that follows. If you come with us to Jamaica, we have, you know, intake calls, then we have a whole prep day, then we have the ceremony, then two integration days. So there's a lot of space for you to arrive into relationships with these plans and these states of consciousness very correctly, organically with a lot of space and trust, then a lot of place to digest them. Um, but aside from that, because the festival scene, it does also provide this freedom, this this safety, because we're not being persecuted there. You know, there's the music. There's so many ways to experience these states, you know. So I, I guess we'd have to isolate more. Like, are we talking about ceremony more like religious, uh, psychotherapeutic, one-on-one, or in this larger festival seating where we're in a very large playground and we're learning new ways to play? Yeah. 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 Is there a difference between the the psycho spiritual and the religious? Do you think mm. that there's a distinction to be made in the way that those mm. are structured? Great question. I think eventually it all leads to the same place. Um, okay. Within ourselves, like if we become unified and whole, there's also I think the main psychedelic impulse is towards unity, uh, whether with ourselves, the ecosystem, the planet, the cosmos, and so on. And there's so many layers to that unity. We're all holes within larger holes. And so me becoming whole within myself means moving through all my trauma work, uh, through my relationships with each other, discovering my life purpose and so on. What's, what's, what's my role within this larger whole? Mm. Um, you know, again, a lot of these traditions, though, that created ceremonies, they didn't have the Western intellect that really broke things down, especially when it comes to psychotherapy. You know, all the structures of the psyche, they didn't have the language and so on. So for them, it was all spirits. 
you know, it's, they have a very animistic belief that every part of you is a, almost like a different spirit and spirits mix up the entire environment. And yeah, there's some truth to that, but they don't necessarily have these constructs of the ego or the collective unconscious and so on, or the neuroscience of talking like the default mode network. So I, I think it all does lead to the same place, but psychology works on mostly the layers of the biography. And unless you study transpersonal psychology, it doesn't go to these larger realm of like archetypes and larger unit of experiences. Hmm. Do you think that like the more animistic approach right. of more um, primal cultures, do you think that that was actually the peak of what they potentially needed? Because they didn't mm. have like the psychological terms and definitions. So to them, that like wasn't even a part of it. So like, is it possible that just having the spirits was mm. actually all they needed in order to shake it out and process that trauma yeah they did fine i think they did just fine um our system generally is geared towards healing so if your body gets a cut it heals on its own you're not sitting there have to process how your arm's going to heal it does so your your organs your body everything wants to repair and maintain its integrity your heart and your psyche wants to do the same thing uh but if it's emotional and psychological normally giving a loving space so the person feels safe and they could process the material, their system moved towards healing. As Stanislav Grof, who studied psychotropic states, you know, with, with LSD and other psychedelics for 50 years, he says that the psychedelic states catalyze what's known as states that are holotropic, states that move towards wholeness. So just mm. getting into the state moves our psyche towards wholeness. That's why when people give mushrooms, a lot of it tends to self-organize on its own. And that's, um, wow. yeah, yeah. I, I love that idea that there's already like a map within us towards wholeness, yeah. but it just kind of takes like kind of moving some things around. It's almost like, like I think it's called like bone setting where you mm. like you have to kind of like break the bone in order for it to like actually heal in a different way. Mm. And I can attest to the experience. Sometimes it feels like that. you're just like in it. You're like, I feel kind of awful. It's very yeah. challenging sometimes. But if you are in that space, which mm. I also can attest to, um, like the transformational setting is that playfulness that you brought up, I feel like is so important because I think underlying the entire experience of being alive is a slight nod towards playfulness and levity. And we often kind of forget that when we're fragmented within ourselves and engaging in this capitalistic society that like we are fundamentally here out of a basically good reason, yeah. you know? Yeah, no. Capitalism in general, you know, I wrote a lot on it too, because um, by its nature, it focuses one on capital and it's, it's focused on the individual gaining capital, right? At the expense of the other employees, the society, the ecosystem. You know, most of the problems we have now in the world is, is these stresses called because people are trying to gain profit or money. You know, so by its entire structure, it, it, Especially within the way it's created right now, money's created out of debt. There's three times more debt than there is money in the world. All that creates tremendous stress and sense of scarcity out of something we've created, right? So the rest of the animal kingdom is not in this constant stress all day, every day of I have to pay rent, I have to figure out how to pay food, I have to figure out how to provide my family where they're working eight hours a day, you know, at least for survival. And some people it's not even meeting that need. So we're now in a society where, um, it's difficult. As Yuval Noah Harari points out in his book, Sapiens, um, our hunter-gatherer ancestors were likely a lot less stressful than any of the major of the population today. They spent about four hours a day for working on survival, and the rest of the time was just communicating, gossiping, playing. Primates today spend about 25% of their time just grooming each other and socializing, right? So we're in constant survival mode 
focusing on individuality to survive, which is, uh, it, it's larger than any other point in human history. Yeah. I definitely feel like, especially with like social media, where you see other individuals who are like really succeeding, it puts that extra pressure on to like, oh man, they're really having it. Like they have the life that I want. I have to, you know, so I feel like it's really getting compounded. So what I'm curious about is for people who want to like begin this work, but maybe don't have access to head on out to Jamaica, who I, I'm not um, saying do anything illegal, but for the people who they're going to, how could they mm -hmm. actually set an intention? So say they're entering like a festival space or they're like, I'm at home. I have the ability to procure. How could mm. they like take their experience and create this container of levity so that they're not just like sailing off into stormy waters without any sort of oar? Yeah. So it's, it's definitely been an issue. I've been thinking about a lot. Um, we're almost finished creating this training with a company called Silo Health, um, P-S-I-L-O Health. Um, and I think it's websites.silohealth.ca. The training should be up in about a month. And it's a four-hour training, how to teach people how to sit for each other. So, that's, so it should be a very comprehensive overview made of eight or nine modules, about four hours long, um, to give you from beginning to end, either how to sit with yourself or sit with each other. And an issue is that there is such a high demand for professionals. That's the bottleneck. There's so many poor people that need mental health, you know, need ex, you know experienced facilitators or that want to experience things themselves there are people being trained and so we need to, to at least give enough awareness or knowledge for people in a lot of these communities to begin to help each other so that, that material will be out it's, it's mostly recorded and just need some editing in about a month in my book i spent about 20 pages going through an overview about guides and psychotherapy and so on just how, how, how to give some information i i if i was wanted somebody was going to try next week, I would definitely do some research. Um, so these substances, specifically, I'll focus on mushrooms, but a, lo a lot of the psychedelics, they've been studied very, very well. Uh, biologically, psilocybin is really safe. You could take a thousand doses, you know, your body breaks it down. It fits into the 5-HT2A serotonin receptor with no biological toxicity. You're fine. That doesn't mean, though, a lot of fear is not going to come up. That doesn't mean trauma is not possible. That doesn't mean you're going to get to this point where you might think you're dying and believe it's true. So having somebody there that's also familiar with this territory and help you feel safe can be tremendously helpful. So I definitely recommend people finding a skilled professional. Otherwise, having somebody they deeply trust, start with lower doses. There is no need to rush the process. I think a good way to see this, it's a lifelong relationship with the mushrooms. Um, you know, it could take it every few months, three or four times a year, whatever you need. Um, but it, it helps you to keep growing. So start slow, do your research, create the right setting and, and begin to see it like as an upward slope towards growth in your life. Mm, yeah. I like that. I like, again, you pointed towards, Hey, community, <laughs> Yeah, that's how you set a good space. So what can they do? So the day arrives, they mm. are, they got their friend, they are setting up their space, they're putting up their trippy posters, they got some Netflix stuff, or like, how do you set a container that mm. will actually facilitate a healthy, safe, secure, mm. productive mm. session that yeah. isn't just kind of like spacing out? Totally. No. So the prep work's important to get clear why you're taking on this. Is there psychological things you want to focus on? What do you want from this experience? And get very, like, this is a big and important thing that I think requires a lot of respect. And 
it'll kick your ass if you don't respect it. It can make you grovel and humble you really deeply, right? So so come into it very humbly. Um, it's, again, set up the whole thing with some help around you. As far as for the environment, I would have a playlist, you know, about six hours. Uh, hopefully not too many words so it doesn't pull your focus. And I'd actually recommend um, an eye mask to go internal. So the external world can seem absolutely fascinating. Objects appear more... 3D, there's more depth perception, uh, more colors, more vivid. Uh, seeing sacred geometry is pretty common leading in the appearance of other animals. But if you go internally, there's a larger, richer world with more meaning than the external world. So I would not have the movie that pulls your attention to anything, especially superficial, the posters. It, it's about going internal to see. And it depends what paradigm you have, whether you go and say spirit, consciousness, God, or just your own unconscious whatever paradigm you're using, there seems to be a deep sense of meaning that can arise if you pay attention inside. Mm. Yeah, I've always kind of considered like the visual and auditory uh, aspect of it as side effects. Mm. Like that's just the side effects that's uh, that'll pass, you know, but like the actual work of processing and dredging up the emotions going in is actually where like the pedal meets the metal. And mm. I find that like, I find it just more distracting, mm. which is why for me, I don't participate at music festivals. I don't, I, I'm pretty much sober at this point just mm -hmm. to like make sure that my vibe is steady and stable for other people who I notice are going through it. But mm -hmm. do you, I mean, with that kind of context, if people are trying to do like real genuine work and form a real relationship, do you think that festivals are potentially mm -hmm. more distracting? Yeah. You know, I would say it's different for the individual and at that point in the life of what's going on. You know, there's such a big, let's say, there could be co-edit contrast to the psychedelic community for people that want recreational spaces and the other people are like, no, 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 this is really serious. It has to be taken kind of in a ceremonial setting. Some of my biggest, most important life experiences have happened in a festival or concert setting. They have, even though I've done a lot of work in ceremony. And so I wouldn't want to take that away from people. That being said, the substance itself also matters. I, I don't really take mushrooms themselves socially too much, and I don't take them too much in, um, in a kind of concert setting because it can be very emotional and really hard and so on. Other medicines, whether it's MDMA, you know, LSD, even 2CB, there's a lot of variety of things that can be more easier to navigate in that setting. Um, that being said, it's still so dose-dependent. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's about right. Um, so what happens if somebody finds themselves up shit Creek yeah. and they don't have their, or, and things mm. are getting really challenging, even if they have somebody, but like, they're not even recognizing that somebody's mm. there. I mean, I guess for those people, mm. I mean, I guess whatever we're about to say is probably not going to be relevant once mm. they're in that position. But mm. as somebody who facilitates ceremony, I'm sure you have helped people through really challenging situations. So mm. like what? is the best approach when things get out of hand. Yeah, no, no, well said. Um, for those doing it on their own, I believe it's called Fireside Chat. It just went live, I think, in April or May. And so now there's a 24-7 app that helps people with difficult psychedelic experiences. So there's somebody live on the other line that's there that you could text with to help you through those moments, and I believe even calling. And it, it's done by volunteer work. And so there's that's across at least this country that's available 24-hour support on difficult psychedelic experiences. So I'll have that handy. Um, I run a free psychedelic integration group with the SF Psychedelic Society called Developing a Relationship with Sacred Mushrooms. It's monthly. It's the first Thursday of every month. You can come and build community 
you know, it's about 50-ish people that show up each time to build community, connect with each other, integrate your experience, be seen, connect with others, get tips and tricks and so on. So that's some space there. As far as the actual session itself, you know, again, I recommend lower doses just because a lot can come up with higher. And one of the reasons I love psilocybin so much is it's different every time. Other substances, MDMA and so on, are pretty reliably producing the same effects. Psilocybin, because it really meets you where you're at and gives you something new, the potential for growth is almost infinite. That being said, what can come up is almost can almost always be a surprise. Deep grief, deep anger, explosions of excitement and energy. I mean, I've had to restrain people and hold them down for a long time. It can get really, because it can be a hurt to themselves, to other people. I've held people their depths of anger and despair and suicidal ideation. A lot of the people, though, that come to this kind of ceremony work, 80% it's because they're in pain. They have some deep pain that traditional therapy and medications haven't been able to resolve after years of trying. You know, as, as the studies have shown, 80% of people with treatment-resistant depression show really positive signs and effects with psilocybin treatment. So they've already tried everything. They've been in a lot of pain, and then they're coming. So I've, I've been working with high-traumatized individuals. Uh, that being said, it's hard for you to know what's going to happen inside, including... Another very one that's not talked enough about is lots of expressions of sexuality. You know, a lot of vitalism, but because it's such a big part of a wholeness, it can be repressed. All of a sudden, people can feel really deeply sexual. And so you want to know that within yourself and while holding space with the really strong boundaries, um, the range of experiences that are possible. And a lot of it's easier to mitigate if the doses are small. There's some level of control that is possible. And then, again, having some level of supervision is really good. So you think kind of creating like a stratified relationship with it where you're like you start small, you start to kind of build a relationship before you start climbing the ladder, so to speak, mm. or do you think capping it? Because I know the gentleman behind you would mm. say that five dried grams in silent darkness yeah. was the way to go, but that's mm. a pretty heavy dose. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's close to the dose I started out a lot of people with, but they, we have a really strong therapeutic structure. You know, we're, we generally start with about four-ish grams, um, but there's so much work done in the container and it's very skilled individuals and we can really hold what's happening. And we have a lot of padding and space, uh, literally and metaphorically for them. I, I love Terrence a lot. I'm kind of, um, I've listened to maybe a couple hundred hours of him talking and he's deeply influenced my life, my dissertation and so on. And as much as I've gotten to see, he's also, uh, by temperament, that's a little less relational, but one of the reasons he said he took the silent darkness by himself when taking these five dry grams is because if there's people around him, he got really consumed of what's going on to them, didn't want to be a bother to them, and so on. So he got in his ways of, of the psyche. And so it's different if you start building a therapeutic container with somebody, and then they actually help you feel more safe and more calm and so on. Um, and by the time Terrence said that, he already had a few decades of experience under him. Right. And so he could take five grams alone and know his limits. Somebody never doing this before doing five grams in silent darkness, it could potentially be horrific. And it doesn't need to start at the heavy of a acceleration of a pace for growth. You know, wait a year. I mean, just just start with one to two grams. See how that goes. Build a three, build a four, build a five. And at some moment, you'll hit your limit. You're like, I'm being stretched a lot. I don't need more than this. Yeah. So. Let's go back to our uh, imaginal person who just had this difficult experience and is now over the hump and they're like, I'm back. Okay, I'm in my body. I'm kind of coming down a little bit. 
for the next few weeks, what are some ways that they can actually integrate and weave that into their daily life? Because mm. I am a big proponent. I'm a body worker. So I studied Peter Levine's work with uh, trauma. And one of the big things is oftentimes what happens with trauma work is you dredge up these traumas and it re-traumatizes people. Mm. So if somebody goes into this experience and then uh, being met with something that I haven't processed and then they just like re-traumatize. Like, how do we ground that experience mm -hmm. in a way that actually heals? Yeah, you know, kind of to bring back what you said earlier. So much of our cultures feel splintered and focused on individuality. So much of the healing is in connection. And, you know, I took this training, Hakomi, which is somatic psychotherapy training, and is, is is so well put together. And something the instructor said that really stood out: John Eisenstein, Eisenstein, and he said trauma is generally a part of us that feels alone. Something happened horrific and we felt really alone in the process and we're still stuck in this fragmented state of fear of aloneness. As opposed to something hard happened but we felt deep in connection and it's just a hard experience that we move through. So with the therapist, normally we bring out these parts of us that were splintered. Say you were raped and you felt really alone in the process as this aggressor but I'm still alone in shocking fear. Having that process with another individual to feel safe and helps it move forward. So deeply, again, um, that container setting between the guide or the therapist and the, and the actual experiencer, or maybe a best friend, somebody close, can be deeply, deeply healing. After the experience, same thing, is it could be fragmenting to feel alone. You know, when I had my mushroom experience of 18, I was in Tucson, Arizona with almost no community around this. It was so profound. And I learned very quickly in that culture, uh, 2002, that it actually didn't feel safe for me to talk about my experience. Nobody else around had this experience of something, say God, divine, spiritual, it wasn't part of the, the cultural conversation. And so understandably, if I did it, you'd be seen as crazy or what you think you're special. So it was now it's just like, it's, I see it all the time. You know, I see people have these experiences all the time. It's a part of our dialogue. At, at the time, I didn't even know there's, you know, research is happening with mystical experiences and psychedelics. It wasn't necessarily in the news. And so having connection around it, but the right kind of connection is very, very helpful. Uh, a lot of the trauma releasing is in the body. So it's also very common for during the experience and sometimes afterwards to have a lot of shaking. The same way like if an animal is being chased, you know, by say, like a predator, it, it gathers all this adrenaline in its body and then it shakes it off. So it can go back to relaxation. Our body's trying to do the same thing. So it's common if people with a lot of trauma go through a lot of shaking, a lot of crying, a lot of sweating and throwing up. There's a lot of expulsion of energy during the actual experience. That may continue. Um... And then learning to put words to it. So, you know, people might really be drained. They're normally really tired after psychedelic experiences. But I think it's an important part of the process to turn the experience into some level of cognition as part of the integration process. You know, so, I mean, there's ways to dance, get in your body, exercise and so on. But I think journaling is really good. You know, if it's not that night or a few days later, like you don't have to force it. But it really helps your mind to try to understand. Otherwise, it's kind of left like all over the place, like trying to categorize what just happened because it's so outside of the bounds of our normal reality. Mm. I'm really glad that you brought up the purging. <laughs> that's something that often, that's why I don't want to do it in uh, in a public setting, you know, because I honestly consider uh, an experience with psilocybin. If I don't puke, then I feel like it's not complete. <laughs> <laughs> what role is the purging playing in this process? Is it kind mm. of a processing and releasing emotions mm. or is there something, I mean, physically your body is just like i don't want none of this yeah. in me. but like in terms of like a ceremony space is there kind of a framework for understanding that mechanism? Mm, you know I, I think it i think it serves many functions for one to take the experience 
seriously. Uh, I don't find generally taking mushrooms fun. I take it because it's good medicine, right? It, it's quite yeah. does a lot for for people, including myself. And so there's this kind of hurdle to jump through as the mushrooms coming on. It can be kind of anxiety provoking, really difficult. Your consciousness shipping form. You're moving into a kind of new space. General, when we encounter something unknown, the response is anxiety. So normally people come in with a lot of anxiety, even though. I know it, or they've done it before, like everything's going to be okay. You know, regardless, sometimes I've taken mushrooms over the last 20 years a lot. Um, I still get anxious every time, you know, because some, you're about to confront something that feels so real and your body goes through these responses with anxiety and so on. I'd say one out of every 20 times somebody needs to fully throw up, but one out of every five to 10 times people get nauseous where they think they're going to throw up, but they're not. And I've seen it, you know, if you're really kind of track what's happening in that moment. I've seen people, like something comes up for them, like, oh my God, so I, I can't say this. There's some truth they have, but they can't say it. They can't say it, and all of a sudden they vomit. They feel okay, they can say it. Or they have some emotional block, and then they vomit, and all of a sudden they're kind of free. So it seems to be like, how much are we holding on in our system? You know, I love that saying, the truth will set you free. I think it's with these knots inside of us, that once we let them go, we can kind of free, like energy and us move more towards personal honesty, you know, with one and each other. Yeah. Well, I don't know what that says about me if I'm puking every time. <laughs> I mean, some of it's inherited, right? Like some of it's yeah. integrational, yeah. some of it's whatever it is. If there's blocks in the system, it needs to come out. Um, but again, the nauseousness is pretty normal. The other part, um, I would recommend not eating the day of. You know, if you have to eat four hours before, it's going to reduce the nauseousness and the need to be throwing up. Mm. What about like hydration? Is there kind of a proper, I recently just kept puking from working out and I found out I was hydrating too much. Oh, so, interesting. Um, yeah. So is there kind of a general guideline for where your water should be at? No, drink when you're thirsty. Um, that being said, you don't want to interrupt the experience too much of having to go to the bathroom, you know? So I'd also would recommend no stimulants that day, coffee, tea, because it's already stimulating your nervous system. You know, you're, it's going to, you're going to be up. Um, it's hard definitely to fall asleep on mushrooms. Uh, it can be hard to walk, you know, you want to stay in your process. So I wouldn't, it's, if you need to go to the bathroom, go to the bathroom, but optimally you're not drinking so much where you have to go more than once during that four or five hours. Got you. Okay. So something that I've recently been doing is I took a meditation training this past year. So it's mindfulness meditation in the, um, Kagyu Buddhist lineage. So I've been doing this about every day. And for me, this has been one of the, probably the most life-changing things I've done next to my explorations in psychedelics. And I can't imagine having not done it. For me, it feels like the forefront of mm -hmm. my development. And I'm kind of curious if you see a, a link, like would a meditation practice mm -hmm. help you be able to interact with this space in a more healthy way? Or yeah, what's the relationship there? A lot. I've had a lot of psychedelic experiences um, notably also mushrooms, that's all uh, telling me, encouraging me to develop and keep strong a meditation practice. Right. So I think they go together very well. Um, one definitely said at least 20 minutes a day to help you stay a state of flow and following your intuition to be kind of clear enough to feel kind of guided around with daily life. And I've gone through many seasons of meditation. Um, during one particular one, I started off with one hour a day, then two hour days and three hour a day. And after over a hundred days of this, 
I had that huge kind of state shift experience where I'm like, you're in it and all of a sudden you feel you're about to die and dissolve. It's all scary. You stay with it. And all of a sudden there's this huge kind of sense of God and divinity and everything's vibrating. I'm alive. You're completely in the moment. You're huge, radical, straight restructuring. I'm like, but like I'm here. Wow. This is awesome. And the first thought that arose was I've experienced this on psilocybin, but this just took me hundreds of hours. (laughs) You know, meditation has a lot of discipline practices, clearing. It does a lot of things, but far as getting into states and experiencing the awareness and knowledge, it just seems to really shortcut the process to, to get you. And maybe my previous psychedelic experiences had made my psyche more malleable and easier to break through, you know, because I, what took me a hundred days might've taken somebody else, maybe a lot longer, you know, but it, it happened because I really stayed with it. And I already had tasted these states before. And the, the, for me, there was completely identical from what I'd experienced on psilocybin. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause I know, um, Terrence McKenna was famous about just like, why meditate? Just <laughs> follow plants instead. Um, there's this really wonderful conversation with him and Ram Das, who is someone I've plugged in with probably a little bit more than McKenna. I love McKenna to, to death. I mean, no pun intended, mm-hmm. but, um, yeah, I, I just, there's something for me, uh, that I'm noticing with meditation. I feel like, like, growth is kind of like uh, an axis so there's horizontal growth and then vertical growth mm-hmm. so i feel like the, for me my relationship like the mushrooms have been really horizontal in that it helps me uncover my psychological situation more than it does necessarily my spiritual it kind of moves things mm-hmm. around to access the spiritual mm-hmm. but the meditation for me has been about learning how to be radically okay with where i'm at and the horizontal progression and like not feel the same like i gotta Mm. do it Mm. so baked within the experience of meditation the patience the fact that it takes a hundred days to actually even feel even like the slightest thing Mm -hmm. has almost trained me to just find like radical peace with wherever i'm at in the stage but then the Mm. mushrooms dredge up all these like karmic conditions that i have within myself that like i then have to like metabolize and use the meditation to become okay with Mm. and for me my progress has just been one of kind of acquiescing to just who i am right now Mm -hmm. you know and i just wonder is -hmm. there a chance that we could maybe use mushrooms in a materialist Mm. way to where we get hooked Mm. to the experience of mush like mm. i need ceremony to do this thing i gotta like i gotta mm. i gotta heal you know we become addicted to healing mm-hmm. is that is that possible yeah, have yeah, you yeah. seen that i haven't um specifically with mushrooms um you know they're used to break addictions you know there's been a lot of research on with alcohol and nicotine they break our patterns of, of, of addiction and forming habits generally after people do a large mushroom journey like they're good they had a a lot of meaningful stuff and like i'm good for a while um yeah. also within nature it seems to be very anti-addictive in the sense that you can't really take mushrooms too many days in a row with high doses and have an experience like if you take have a ceremony one day you need almost double the second day almost quadruple the third by day four or five you can take whatever amount and it stops working so it, it kind of has a built-in mechanism of not getting hooked but, but to kind of bring it back to the meditation i definitely see meditation for myself it, it's a daily practice cultivating a state of consciousness mushrooms you know it's good quarterly you know every four months and i think that really can deepen our sense of states it does kind of this checkup where am i with all the parts of my being and so on um you know generally unless you're microdosing psychedelics aren't seen as a daily practice it's mm-hmm. like once in a while you do a deep dive that being said you know uh, 
meditation is great for the daily. Like you know, once in a while, people run a marathon that they work up to, but they still can go to the gym five days a week. You know, so I think we can have structures that are good for our daily lives. Um, mm. And I think that's what meditation is amazing for. And then once in a while, we need a deeper dive. Right. Right. Yeah. Do you think an element of that deeper dive is kind of like the mystical experience mm. of it? Because I wouldn't say that my meditation is inherently mystical. It's mm. more like I'm sitting there kind of bored and just kind of like seeing all my neurotic patterns. Mm. Like, yep, I'm okay. Like, here we are. Back <laughs> breath. I love but it. Like, with mm -hmm. mushrooms, it's like a very much like, oh, now my boundary is dissolving and I'm becoming one with the cosmos. And mm -hmm. Do you think that humans need mystical experience yeah. in order to be kind of fully vital, fully connected to... Mm their being yeah i, I want to say yes uh that being said having worked with a lot of people it's not necessarily available to everybody and all the time it's not like i take it every time i take mushrooms of a mystical experience i've just happened to have i don't know six or seven out of the hundreds i've done that have been really transformative and mystical you know and I, it, they're grace when it happens and sometimes there's windows where it's just more available but other times it doesn't go there but knowing that it exists has changed my life um, you know, a theory I kind of want to bring up, there's this professor named Richard Doyle. He wrote this book, um, uh, Darwin's Pharmacy, Sex, Plants, and the, and the Evolution of the Noosphere. And for his research, and he's a Pennsylvania State University professor, he read thousands of trip reports. And he said that the main psychedelic experience is that the participant realizes they're part of a vast interconnected living network. And they should be recalled ecodelics. You know, and because of this idea, I spent an entire chapter in the book talking about ecology and psychedelics. And one way it was like, well, why do 200 different species of fungi on every continent but Antarctica and then thousands of different species of plants have psychedelics in them, including DMT? And why are they so big part of our ecological systems? Um, one way they can be seen is that they're equal liberators. They try to create an ecological awareness. It's the way the environment tries to create homeostasis within the consciousness of those people, the same way your body as a living organism sends chemicals to other parts of the body to regulate itself, that the ecosystem's trying to do the same thing. Um, from this perspective, they're part of a vast living evolutionary network. You know, as archeological evidence shows, I mean, going back uh, tens of thousands of years, if not hundreds or thousands, or I'll pause in my book, including with Terrence work, millions of years, that they were a part of, they were a part of our culture. You know, and that's how we felt harmony, peace, growth. It's why we evolved. You know, that's why I put wrote an entire book breaking down all the evidence, why and how this particularly made it clear human evolution, right? And so, if we're we're part of nature, we're part of this huge process, at least on the Earth, going back almost four billion years. Um, and we were following a trajectory until we begin to push these substances aside, uh, likely. In, during the agricultural revolution, we get to grow our own food and not needing other substances outside of what we're growing and so on. Then we lost this large, a rich array of, of diversity of chemicals that naturally grow in the environment. So from this evolutionary perspective, we would do a lot better. We would treat ourselves, the environment, other people, have spiritual experiences, feel more whole and so on. By reintegrating into the, our diet, these compounds that naturally grow everywhere that co-evolved with us over, over long periods of time. So at what point, so you think it's like the agriculture revolution. Do you yeah. think that's kind of like what ended up happening with like mm. Western Europe and like kind of the advent of civilization? Mm. You start to see a lot of like mistreatment of the land and this yeah. um, conquest focus. Do you think yeah. that that was because we started to separate from, um, I mean, 
mm-hmm. any entheogen yeah. really we didn't have any sort of mystical relationship mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. any aspect of the earth and yeah I mean, look at where we're at <laughs> totally you know i think historians i think n- note that um the agricultural revolution is the largest, most impactful thing that happened to humanity, you know, and that definitely, I would say it was a development, you know, with, with the relationship with psilocybin mushrooms and so on. But nobody can argue that humanity looked one way until we figured out how to grow food, that we had huge population growth. Before the agricultural revolution, what's known as like a hunter-gatherer lifestyle, we're groups of 75 to 100, 150 people roaming around. The value wasn't on material goods because we can really own whatever we can carry. Nobody owning land, right? So the value is on relationships. That's how we survive. We spend most of our day in connection and so on. Once we figure out how to grow food and settle on land, we begin to grow and own land, you know, own land, and then also acquire material goods. And this went on for generations and generations. Now you're inheriting material wealth and land and power. And it becomes really important to know who your offspring is. So men, um, just being larger body, begin to own women to own them to know who their children are going to be right so that we start marriage and so on and our name is really important and there's a lineage and now we have the beginning to see whether it's capitalism economics and so on where now it's more about the growth of power and so on but also as Yuval Noah Hari points out in sapiens mushrooms are very elusive they couldn't have been integrated in the agricultural revolution they grow through spores you know they're microscopic we figured out eventually that seeds from the plants and trees but it was only because of Terrence and Dennis McKenna in the late 70s, they, they published the first psilocybin mushroom grower's guide that we had the technology to grow psilocybin mushrooms. So it's very recently that we really even figured that part out. Mushrooms we couldn't grow. Whatever we didn't figure out, know how to cultivate, we just kind of left out. And we're talking about over thousands of years, we begin to build these structural societies, a military, priest, kinglyhood, and so on, instead of just a normal tribe society, were very complex. And that began to take all our attention away from the landscape and nature and this deep interconnection that we have. So we lost this connection to these ritual of molecules. That being said, so that's about nine, 10,000 years ago. But about 3000 uh, BC, we have the first religious writings of the Rig Vedas, you know, that started the Hindu tradition. And about 200 of those lines, they talk about Soma, a plant or fungi that connects one with God. So we know at the beginning of religion, it plays some role. Um, we know in the Illusionian Mysteries in the Greeks, there's a great book recently came out um, by Brian Morasku called The Immortal Key, became a bestseller, uh, talking about the Greek tradition and psychedelics. We know for a thousand years, they had a mystical rite where they used a psychedelic substance, likely it was um, they used ergot that has LSD-like compounds inside of it. And for a thousand years, they had mystical experiences, including Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, the people that created Western democracy and science and so on. So we know that happened for a long period of time. But as organized religion became stronger and stronger, wanted power, a lot of this was repressed. Everything seen outside of those relation, like organizational religions became a threat. You know, So once Western Europe came to the Americas, which are rich in psychedelics in the 1500s, you see the church writing uh, once the conquistadors came of people taking psychedelics here in the Americas, and they are ordered to kill them all. You know, the Mazatecs eventually survived for they were matriarchal. The women did the ceremonies, not men. And so on. they integrated Catholicism, there were remote areas. So a few cultures survived, you know, but throughout history, when these things were found by this dominant culture that just thought it knew better and had to spread its own religious beliefs, it kind of just started to take out everything it came across without actually trying the substances themselves. Wow. It's almost like a suicidal 
inclination to just mm. kind of like like it's so weird that an aspect of the planet would start fighting its own homeostatic urge mm. that just kind of shows how disconnected we have truly gotten mm. and probably as a result of the way that our diet has shifted with the agricultural mm. revolution and cutting out all these substances we've really kind of given up our seat in the garden of eden you know, mm. where, like that was the apple was like mm. agriculture <laughs> yeah. so I know you mentioned the Mazatec people and that you have actually trained with them. This is actually something that's really interesting because I've never heard of them in mm. particular. Where, yeah. How did you get connected with that? Yeah. They're still active? Yeah, they are definitely. So they live in the Sierra Mountains in Oaxaca, Mexico. And it's because of that culture that we're aware of psilocybin mushrooms. So in uh, 1955, uh, uh, Vice President of J.P. Morgan, Gordon Wasson, um, had he was really interested in mushrooms worldwide, and he'd travel around and learn about cultures of mushrooms. Then he learned that there was a group in Mexico that had been using them in religious rites. You know, so he flew from the East Coast eventually um, into Oaxaca, uh, went into Coatla uh, de Jimenez, one of the cities in, in the of, of the Mazatecs, and then the curandera, the shaman, one of the shamans there, curandera, Maria Sabina, gave him psilocybin mushrooms in 1955, and he flew down with a photographer and so on. And he had some power and push and, 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 and cultural connections. And he published his story in Life magazine in 1957. And that was the first time our larger culture became aware of psychedelics. You know, LSD had existed underground. There's some work done on peyote and so on. But those were mostly for like intellectuals and scientists, some artists and so on. Now we have all of America becoming aware. And then Timothy Leary learned about this, flew down to Mexico to try them. And there was this huge widespread and cultural revolution that happened. Um, but it is because they kind of kept that light alive of psilocybin mushrooms within that culture. And they stretch back all the way to the Mayans. So we know at least a few thousand years ago, the Mayans had been using um, mushrooms. They have about 180 carved stones of mushrooms, right? So it's been a part of that tradition for a long time. So it's because they kind of kept that light alive um, that we even have awareness of psilocybin mushrooms themselves. Wow. That's amazing that you were able to plug into that very specific lineage and like... Yeah. Thank Gaia that that is still, like, what a long torch, you know? Like, what a it long is. history and how precious. And I hope that it's being protected <laughs> and cherished and uh, that just, like, my heart just kind of, like, throbs mm. at the idea of capitalism sweeping in and doing mm. what it does. Yeah. So mm -hmm. it, it was in 55 when this happened. And before that, um, it's just been kind of like gestating there, just staying. So mm -hmm. like the rest of America didn't have any from the time we started until 55, the rest of the world didn't really know that this was still mm -hmm. happening. You know, yeah. So late thirties and then trying and then he actually tried it in forties. Albert Hoffman, um, discovered and invented, depends how you want to look at it, um, LSD. Right. But that was kind of stayed in pharmaceutical and psychological circles and some artists, um, so that wasn't necessarily widespread whatsoever. And after this was discovered in 1955, Gordon Wasson brought out Albert Hoffman, who discovered LSD to Mexico, and he isolated psilocybin and named it. Um, wow. So, you know, I mean, culturally, this was 1950s America is very religious, more conservative and so on. Um, you know, we knew about cocaine, alcohol, cigarettes, so on. Psychedelics was kind of way outside of any kind of paradigm we thought was possible. Um, and so it had been going there. So 
North, Central, and South America, that people migrated here about 20,000 years ago, and there's rich psychedelic cultures all across these two continents. And as Western Europe came with their own ideologies and beliefs, all that was really, really repressed. Uh, people necessarily wouldn't have had too much interest, you know, and it was mostly because he had this huge mystical experience, the way he wrote about it, people got really curious. Um, the, the interest developed in that area, and then you have the entire Timothy Lear bringing it to Harvard, creating three psilocybin experiments at Harvard soon after, you know, that really launched a lot of interest in this area. Mm. I didn't realize that Hoffman was also the one to isolate it. Wow, he's got a hell of a career. He did really good, yeah. yeah. Is it uh, safe to say that it was a lot of Timothy Leary's shenanigans that kind of got it criminalized as well? Because I know he had a huge hand with LSD becoming criminalized. Yeah, he's definitely historically the people point to the most. Is this one human and it's his fault and so on. And it could be seen many ways. Um, Michael Pollan, who wrote a recent bestseller on it, how to, how to Change Your Mind on the History. And he did a great job researching the history of psychedelics. And something he says always stands out to me. He says, what other point in human history did the youth have such a searing rite of passage that the prior generation didn't understand, right? So you're having the youth having these huge transpersonal psychedelic experiences, changing their mind, they're deconditioning agents, changing their entire belief systems. Noticely, this really scares the entire parents. This is like, we don't know what's going on. Our kids are changing. The values are changing. People are opposing the war. They're doing drugs. There's all this religious stigma around it. You know, traditionally within these entheogenic societies, it's done in ceremony and lineages are passed down. The elders are there. The parents are there. They're passing wisdom. There's this unbroken chain. So here you're having the youth just go full blown out. Um, the parents, you know, the older generation made a sweeping gesture to make all psychedelics illegal uh, in 1966. And as... as uh, Michael Pollan notes out, by that time, there were already 1,500 different research papers on psychedelics, all showing their promises of use, no, no addiction, how beneficial they can be. So the science was completely ignored. Um, and so it could be argued it's because we didn't have any container, we didn't have any context, we didn't have any understanding. You know, and so it's been a really slow process to integrate these into our Western model you know, through the last 20 years of rigorous science so people can really understand that we can kind of interpret this framework and really hold it really well this time. I love that. So do you think that that's kind of where we're at right now as we're seeing kind of the, the fungal bodies kind of sprout through in terms of like legalization, mm -hmm. you know, now that it's the idea is really permeating and like these papers are still mm -hmm. there and more studies. Mm -hmm. Do you think that now we have more of a chance than we ever have to actually mm -hmm. integrate this into our society? And are you confident that like mm -hmm. this is something that will happen within our lifetimes? I'm really confident it's, it's happening and it's happening very, very soon. Um, again, thank God for the empirical research of the science because we now have data that's irrefutable. You know, we know how it's affecting the brain. We can see how amazing positive it is for people with illnesses that we didn't even know were treatable. We can see how, how much growth is happening all around. Um, you know, I was here in Oakland and I went to court to testify to make him decriminalized here, you know, where I live in, it was unanimous, you know, it's decriminalized now in Denver. Um, it's legalized in Oregon. It hasn't completely gotten effect, but it's been happening there. Scott Wiener, the senator in California, is pushing for full decriminalization of all psychedelics across the state. Hopefully that happens next year. And so from a grassroots level, it's happening locally all over the place. You know, from a top-down federal level, 2023 is the projected legalization of both MDMA and psilocybin. 
So that's, yeah, yeah, that's on track. They're on phase three of FDA approvals. Everybody wants it to happen. There's no opposition. You know, these are very helpful. They've, you know, with MDMA, they focus on veterans. It's all bipartisan. Everybody wants this. There's a lot of pain, a lot of mental health issues going on. Uh, everybody just wants it done correctly. They want all the T's crossed and the dies audited. And so it's there, you know, and it's, it's happening a lot faster, even from a grassroots level than any of us previously thought was going to be possible. I think something that's really fascinating about it too is as everybody right now, I feel like we're at like a climax with our political system and that it's just so broken and inept mm. at this point. But we're starting to see with the spearhead of psychedelics and cannabis that grassroots campaigns on like single um, object things or single, I don't know why I'm thinking of the word, single issue things. Like these things are actually starting to like come through and it's amazing that it's the plants that are showing us mm. how to actually push push real legislation through yeah. it's like mm. hopefully we can apply that same vigor once this thing kind of bursts mm. open like oh wait we could have did that for like healthcare. yeah <laughs> like, what yeah you know i mean we can see the plants research shows there's an increase well I'll just stay with psilocybin right now increase in cognition increase in empathy e- ecological awareness all around um people tend to feel better and take care more of their family the people around them the community um, they feel reinvigorated. You know, there's despair and hopelessness. A lot of people have this experience of dying and being reborn. Uh, they have a deep sense of curses. A lot of people become activists, you know, so I'm not surprised that there's a lot of energy and push. You know, I, from my perspective, a lot of what happened in the 60s was because of psychedelics, you know, in terms of women's rights, a, a lot of stuff, you know, with racial rights and so on. There's this deep care, you know, whether we don't go fully into the mystical experiences, there's, there, we can have the sense of oneness, that everybody matters, which kind of frees us, frees us from our isolation, you know, into a deep love and care for everybody around us. Yeah. It's kind of an amazing thing. You know, I have a lot of people in my life who are even older from like the prior generation who helped make it illegal, who Mm. are now like asking me questions about it. And, you know, I've been pretty vocal about it, uh, especially when everything was happening. I had my own 60-0 where I was like, this is the thing. Everybody needs to do this. And I had a lot of people who were like, oh man, yeah, you're off the deep end, like really concerned. But, you know, like 10 years later, they can kind of see like, oh wait, he's actually like really healed a lot of the things that he has going on. So now there's Mm. this doubling back. And I think that that's a really beautiful thing that we're actually able with our generation to provide for our the older generations, what they weren't able to provide for us. And now it's yeah. like the evolution is working its way back through yeah. us. Yeah. And we're kind of ambassadors. You know, I've, I've held a few journeys for my father. You know, I can even mm. tell you how life changing that's been. I, I'm imagining, you know, somebody that's 60 years old. He, he came in from Iran. And so my mom's from Mexico. And from that mindset, they, they thought, this is all I'm growing, you know, I've seen the world, there's this, you know, I figured it all out. And all of a sudden you give them this dissolving experience where they're able to heal a lot of lifetime of deep traumas to see themselves more fully, to have more kind of, you know, same score, unitive experiences, you know, it's been an incredible gift to have that experience with my family. Um, And a lot of the people that come to our retreats are average ages in the fifties, you know, sixties. So it's a lot of people that like, well, I've been in pain for decades or whatever amount of time. I'm ready to go outside the normal uh, conventional bounds to see what else there is. It's amazing how a lot of that generation, they didn't have the same resources that we do. I mean, even like all the schooling that you went to, I mean, in their time, that wasn't a thing, you know, and Mm -hmm. like the culture really wasn't there. It was kind of like a fringy thing. So they have all this 
generational trauma like so many people from that era because it's just it was the wild west you know shit was just going down and they don't even realize how much more free and open their lives can be and it's Mm -hmm. it's what a blessing what an actual genuine medicine to be able to go into that energy and to be able to open it up and like show like this is what being a human actually is you know Mm -hmm. so much of it is just so condensed and calloused Mm. and this is really one of the in my eyes like the really the the salve to help heal that like truly it's a passion you know it definitely gives me i mean so much hope in my personal life but also collectively for the world like so much it's it's so potent i mean i've I've seen lives just change overnight just for people that have been able to stop drinking drinking every day for five years stop overnight you know massive patterns it doesn't happen every time but almost half the time it does which is a really high mark um yeah and so how quickly, you know, humans can change and transform and on a collective level, I think it just makes me really optimistic of the future. And I don't think I would have been like that if it wasn't for these medicines. You know, we could see, you know, we're moving towards ecological de- deterioration, economic collapse, there's so many things happening. And yet knowing that these are part of nature and they've always been their will be and they're gaining awareness, you know, it just gives great hope. I almost feel like those two things are kind of co-arising like nature can, I mean, we are nature. There's no separation and we all like, you can feel it in the air. There's this general buzz of like uncertainty and kind of like apprehension, like, Oh, we're really screwing some things up. But at the same exact time, codependent is the awareness of psychedelics, Mm -hmm. you know? And I love that you pointed out like the level of optimism because I'm also a very optimistic person. Like I'm very real and that like I can acknowledge what's happening, but because I've had these experiences of connectivity and like how honestly quickly things can heal. I mean, like you said, massive changes happen overnight. And I really do see like the psychedelic impulse as something that like we we're not doomed, mm-hmm. you know, but it's from that perspective of like, I know how quickly things can heal. You can orient yourself in a way to like do the work. Totally. Um, yeah. Jeremy Rifkin, he's a brilliant, mostly economist, but social theorist. He has a great book called the empathic civilization. Um, and the whole premise of the book is he's noticing as entropy in our culture is decre- increasing. So is empathy. So entropy being like, as we're going through all these deteriorations, ecologically, financially, all these kind of heartaches are happening. And that graph is rising. Coinciding to that is a graph rising of empathy. And he goes through a history and see how much technology has increased sense of empathy, how laws have changed to include more rights and so on. It's nobody can argue that their sense of care for each other is going up. And so is awareness, you know, of, yeah. you know, the, of Ken Wilber, this um, integral theorist, he kind of writes that we move through this growth of first being egocentric, then ethnocentric, caring for the people that are like us, then world-centric, caring about the world, then cosmocentric. And he, and he, he does this based on many, you know, about 100 different models of, of human development. So we're increasing in awareness and empathy and sense of wholeness and larger identities while the world in many ways could be moving towards a crisis. And how much this is kind of correlated. It's like us moving towards crisis and eating up all the energy that's allowed us to have this technology to be able to communicate and have these conversations, right? They're really interlinked. And, you know, Rifkin kind of just ends the book saying, we don't know which one's going to win. Will empathy or entropy win? And for me, I think empathy is absolutely going to win. Our our, our cultivation of widening of our care. Well, I think the thing about empathy that a lot of people don't understand is that we all have it. There's, I mean, all that calloused kind of psyche that is there. But underneath that is typically a good heart for most people. And Mm -hmm. right now, 
all of the issues are front and center. People's pain is so out there now, and that naturally awakens that empathetic urge mm-hmm. for the people who, even if you have like a sliver in the callus, like that's going to get in, and then that's going to crack you open if you allow it. But I think like the psychedelics will help you mm-hmm. widen that that crack, so you let more of the world in, mm-hmm. and the natural spontaneous empathy will be there but it does take like genuine change makers people like yourself who are willing to do the work get the education and write the books you know and i'm i'm curious what with this book is your ultimate aim like what is if like the best case scenario happens where would you like your book to play a role in yeah no thank you i've obviously said i've spent so much time thinking about that I believe, from my perspective, this idea that we evolved because of the relationship with the psilocybin mushrooms um, is the big missing piece to our human story. I, I became obsessed with evolution during my teenage years, and I've studied almost 20 years in academia focusing on evolution. And I read Terrence McKenna's book, Food of the Gods, where he proposed this theory at age 19. And after all that time in academia, I still didn't come across a better theory. You know, it fits in the terms of like the neuroscience of why our brain grew, if it's an ecological standpoint, from a chemical standpoint, from a religious of why of religious experiences, even the development of language, even the development of art, tool making, every everything fits and it grows in that area. It's all the pieces really come together. And I think our species is in this major amnesia because we don't know who we are. We don't know how we got here. We just see there's animals and then us and then plants. So like we don't know what caused that link in that growth. And when we start to really look at psilocybin mushrooms in, in general, um, the, you know, the fungi, the larger body of fungi is, is mycelium, this large underground network that interconnects all the root systems in the environment, passing information between all of, of life underground. You know, for those of have not seen Fantastic Fungi right now, it's, it's, you know, it's on Netflix, really recommended. And so this large, vast interconnected living network that we've always evolved on top of grows this mushroom containing psilocybin perfectly fits into our brain, creates hyper-connected brain states, these experiences of oneness. So we've co-evolved with this for a long period of time. And I think by changing our human identity of like, hey, that's how we got here, really legitimizes these mushrooms as safe as a part of our evolutionary process and it will eventually lead us back to using them collectively. Mm-hmm. And by doing so, we reestablish ecological awareness, care, cognition, and can get back in track with our evolutionary process. I love that like the missing piece of our past is actually the missing piece for how we create a more sustainable future as well. Yeah. Like they really, I mean, I, I can't think of anything else that would fit that, that hole in our, our gap of understanding. Like what else? Aliens? Maybe. Yeah. But that doesn't really help us for addressing climate change. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. 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 I mean, it's something so alien. It's something so outside the normal paradigm, the, the dominant paradigm, which is I think why we missed it. You know, that there was a consciousness expanding substance in the environment that expanded our consciousness, right? I mean, um, we, we've overlooked this tremendously, but it fits with the, our kind of regular view of evolution that diet's involved in our evolutionary process. But we didn't know until the late 90s that there was compounds that can stimulate neurogenesis, the growth of new neurons. We thought the brain just kind of formed and it grows. We didn't know that there's compounds that can keep growing the brain. You know, so it really starts to bring all the pieces together. And just like when a personal human has trauma, it's kind of a, a part of their past they haven't integrated. Collectively, I'm kind of saying the same thing. We have amnesia. We have a huge collective trauma not knowing our identity and how we got here and how we evolved. And by fixing that trauma, moving towards wholeness, we can really kind of establish a better society and way of life. Wow, I love that. 
And it's interesting because I feel like our response to that trauma, uh, a part of our hardening is religiosity. Mm. And that's actually the thing that has kept us from really returning back to the mushroom because now mm. we have this idea of who we are, which is, um, sorry for those who out there who subscribe to any potential thing, but like we have this conceptual model that has disconnected us from like the human body that is rooted on the earth. Mm. And then we use that as a means to hide away from that. I mean, it's kind of... It, pokes a hole in the balloon of like the the idea of i mean maybe like the soul or whatever it's like we are not that like special above the earth you know which is baked into all religions we are of the earth mm. which is like that's like a pagan idea you know like that's very threatening to a lot of belief systems yeah. you know it's it's powerful yeah as, as you mentioned it is threatening there's a lot of reasons i think this couldn't have come forward before you know, if we were generally all one religious culture with its, with its kind of all the safeguards to protect itself and its belief system, this would have been too threatening. You know, I mean, people were burned as witches just for being different or using plants in the past. Uh, the idea of mushrooms of connecting with source wouldn't have been able to exist. Um, and so now there's finally permeability in people's minds that even entertain this idea. Yeah. yeah. Do you think that kind of like dark age was required for like mm. a heightened understanding? Like it kind of took like stepping away from our unity to really see the full picture of our mm. unity? Or do you think this was kind of an unnecessary sidetrack that actually hurt more than anything? Yeah, you know, definitely. I like to subscribe through the idea of everything's meant to happen and it's all, you know, organized with a larger intelligence. You know, that being said, there's sometimes it feels like sometimes traumas happen within individuals' lives that weren't needed. And, there's there could be a lot of suppression of individuals and ideas i mean we have suppression of women for the last few thousand years of other you know races of, of just outliers of ideas um forever kind of dominant narrative and, and that's information that's being repressed that can lead us to make better decisions in many ways you know with psychedelics you know if we never lost track i feel like a high likelihood it would have been a much more harmonious creative interconnected world and given all the pain that's happened, you know, see all the wars, the ecological collapse, the suffering, all of it, the sense of alienation, anxiety, all of it. I, it's hard for me to say that it was all necessary. You know, of course, I want to be like, yeah, it was and find good things in it. But sometimes pain just happens and it's just awful. Um, not to say that we can't drive and, and integrate it and make good things out of it. But it would have been nicer if, if we were able to stay in that deep state of con con connection with, with us in nature. Yeah. It probably would have made the game a lot more sustainable right off the bat and given the change makers a little bit less to work with. There wouldn't mm. need to be change. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, Jahan, I know we are mm. coming up on that time. Thank you so Dude. much for your time. So this honored. has been really wonderful. Thank um, you. Thanks for that. So, yeah, let people know. How can people stay in touch with you? You got a book coming out. That's mm -hmm. an incredible feat. Mm -hmm. How can people stay in touch with your platform? Yeah, um, my website's uh, psychedelicevolution.org. And you can find me on their services uh, page to find my book and so on. The book's called The Psilocybin Connection. It's now on Amazon, uh, the Barnes & Noble page, Google Play. Uh, it comes out April 5th, but all the pre-orders are already being taken. Wonderful. Cool. Yeah. Uh, if people want to meet up with you in Jamaica, is that yeah. a thing? Do you have anything coming up or do they got to wait a bit? I'm going in um, November again. Um, there's another team going in January. Um, Atmanretreats.com, A-T-M-A-N, retreats.com is the way 
And then I lead that uh, monthly group with the SF Psychedelic Society called Developing a Relationship with Sacred Mushrooms. It's a free monthly group for people who can join. Wonderful. Cool. Man, there was so much that I still wanted to get into on like the intricacies of holding group space mm. and I had stuff. But yeah, time is a thing and you know, I'm happy where we are. So again, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time. It's a pleasure. Likewise. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. See you soon. Me too. All right, friends, that was the episode. Thank you so, so, so much for listening all the way through till the end. I really do make this show for you. That was Jahan Kamsasada, and that was a doozy of a conversation. Am I right? Um, so, yeah, thanks for listening all the way through till the end. If you want to support this show, head on over to Apple Podcast. Leave us a five-star review. Uh, follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook. Subscribe over on YouTube. Any interaction at this point really does help kind of rig the algorithm in our favor if you will we also do have a patreon over at patreon.com slash 21st century vitalism that's just for early supporters um the rewards will be coming probably next year in 2022 uh wow it's already 2022 and um yeah so today i just want to say thank you uh, if you want to stay in touch with Jahan's work, head on over to psychedelicevolution.org. All of his links are going to be down in the description as well. He's got his new book coming out. Um, that's The Psilocybin Connection, Psychedelics, The Transformation of Consciousness, and the Evolution of the Planet, an Integral Approach. It's going to be on Amazon. It's being published by North Atlantic Books. And that's going to be in the spring of 2022. So, yeah, thank you again so much. I hope you enjoyed the episode, and I will see you in two weeks.